inevitably, most of the work about seed saving and breeding and all this stuff is just like being there and then carrying it forward, right? Like it's, it's, it's an action. It's like a process of action with seeds. So that's the thing that's so amazing about it. When we were talking the other day, yesterday, about maybe doing this, and I was like, I wonder what the seeds I should talk about, because there's a, a few different things. There's, and I think about the seeds that people gave me to care for, which is probably the, like, both really exciting to me because I, the fact that someone would pass on a story, because the seed is a story that, that's carrying forward. So, you know, and I received this, and it's like, you have to save this. Nobody's got it anymore. You know, nobody's, this corn is disappearing, and I need somebody, and it's, and it's been totally beat up by, you know, all this industrial work that was happening in the farms around it. And like, okay, and then we'd jump in, and we'd start saving the corn, and we start going down this, this lifeline of, like, shed, shed, shed. And it is, like, and say this corn, it is a land race, so it's, like, got mahogany cobs and like yellow and the, the middle is just this beautiful like golden orange and eight row and long and you know so we kind of know what it's supposed to look like what the italians had kept it how the algonquins had kept it you know and the, the life that it traveled you know but you're just caring for it just you know kind of maintaining it in or some way maybe that's too cold a word but it's there's something in there so the, I was going to talk about the corn more, but I would say that the thing that uh, we started with, and maybe the story I'll tell is about peas. Uh, partially because it kind of has a um, this relationship of going to school. I, I went to college for plant science because, really, because I felt betrayed in high school by the food system. I was like, this is really what's happening. Like, this is, nobody has any hope in like the planet or life of like recovery and that kind of. So it's really sad for me. So I decided to not go to music, go and just go to for music, and went to plant sciences. I had farmed when I was in my family. So anyway, I realized that a lot of the reason why there's all that feeling of cover up or, or like sort of brainwashing that. The, we can't trust nature. We have to actually synthesize the relationship, and will you know, we're going to help it. <laughs> we're going to you know do this thing, which is you know pretty egotistical, but also pretty dangerous. You know because we're we're missing the messages. We're missing the, the cues, and which is obvious now after so many years. And so um, I struggled in college, but I kept with it because I felt like I needed, like I was farming biodynamically at, for a, a German man in Rhode Island and um, always had gardening gigs and personal private stuff. And then I was taking, I, I started to manage a greenhouse at the botany department early on and I restored it. Um, it had been totally dilapidated and steam pipes had broken and destroyed the space. And so I worked with a carpenter, we rebuilt the greenhouse. We started doing organic research in this little house, and then some of my other friends from plant science department started bringing their research into there. We were doing some cool stuff. We were doing uh, like sound germination, 
and uh, all kinds of different um, like influence on seeds and starting a lot of a lot of lunar a lot of so sound sonic kind of tests and stuff like that and just watching and observing and I had a great um, lab tech boss who uh, was just so supportive of whatever I wanted to do. I was so lucky that I, I had him in my life in that way. And I just, I would wash, you know, I would set up labs and stuff and trade for having this greenhouse. Anyways, cool. And so that gave me this like love and interest of the science of genetics and stuff like that, because he was so into it and so playful about it. And um, we used to collect wild plants and all this stuff, and so it was collected from every possible ecosystem in Rhode Island, for which there are way more than probably most people think. And, uh, you know, it's just incredible. And so, you know, Linnaeus was always a part of the taxonomy thing, and, um, and then Mendel, and, you know, reading stuff like where their minds were going and that kind of thing. And so peas were always an easy one. And uh, one that obviously is a good one to demonstrate and show others because it's like, it's so easy to see this relationship about dominance and recessiveness. Like if it's purple, it's got that dominant trait. And if you cross it into something white and that white makes a pea and it, it doesn't come out purple, it didn't cross. And so it, it gives you these, it's like oh, that, that work, it's cues, it's like definitive. So I was just messing around with that and then, um, few years into, after I had got out of school and farmed different places and mostly in fruit, olives and fruit and stuff like that in California and, and came back to, eventually ended up in New York at Stone Barns. And everybody, the chefs, the community, the, our programs department, everybody was always like, what's new? What's different? What's exciting? You know? And I was like, there's only times talking about the soil like, I could talk about the soil all day, but I don't think it's new and exciting necessarily always to people. I think, like, when you tell the same, because the timeline is so long. So if you ask me tomorrow, or you ask me in a month, or you ask me in a year, it's going to be the same story, you know? It's like the same whole story is going on there. So it's, it's interesting to me, but to the pace of somebody who's listening and learning from it, they're like, what's the next metaphor? What's the next example? And so I was like, well, you know, we, I had been doing a lot of seed saving and stuff, but with the peas, I always loved this one pea, this Oregon giant snow pea. It's got a curl to it. So a lot of times they're wavy. They're really different and, you know, more, much more flavorful than anything. I'd grown larger and, and um, I just was interested about how that ended up being, like where snow peas came from and, um, edible pods, because it wasn't that, you know, before that no one was really producing edible pods before the middle 1900s. It's like kind of a new, new evolution or, or selection. Probably existed, I'm sure, because it's just a trait that was captured. But then um, I met Calvin Lamborn, who is an incredible seed. He died a few years ago, but Calvin was the one that really initially selected the snow pea, snap pea, edible snap pea. Um, and I met him in his older life and with his son. And he it was amazing. He, he like, 
he cried practically the, half the time I talked to him. Just to, he's so passionate about his work and about the work being carried on, like the legacy of the work was the thing that he was so emotional about. And I just thought, you know, this guy really made a contribution and was not interested so much in the contribution. You know, it's just a, a good feeling that I, I, you know, gleaned from that relationship. So anyway, I had been saving this Oregon giant and lots of stuff was coming into the market and coming to the chefs and always a lot of green snap peas, green snow peas. Sometimes they would have these purple ones and they would be beautiful and the chefs liked to use the purple ones, but they didn't taste good. There's extringent and fibrous on. So I started, I was like, what if I could take this Oregon giant and make it purple and see if we could find a, uh, a purple snow, like select that out. So I knew already that the, the pigment, because well, purple's got anthocyanin in it, you know, and the pigment is in, in peas, they're like all legumes, they have two layers of skin, right? For maybe for listeners, like we know that if we eat edamame, there's that second skin that really is almost like cartilage that comes out separate. It's that that's really exaggerated, but in a pea, it still has two. Um, and that two layers is that the fibrous and the pigment and all the astringency lies in that second skin. Uh, but those are all, all three of those are dominant traits. So they rarely express themselves without each other. So getting something with color and losing fiber and losing astringency is a pretty lucky roll, you know? It's like, for that to happen, it's way beyond my skill set of, of science to look at it. So I would just have to, you know, bet on luck, <laughs> you know? So that's what we started to do. So the first thing I did was I just searched all of the small breeders and seed producers that I knew that were saving old purple varieties, new purple varieties. There's not a lot of new purple varieties, but there's a bunch of old ones. Uh, most of them are actually, you know, put out there as ornamental because they're just not edible, but they're so gorgeous. You know, some in really deep purple, some of them more red, and you know, that whole spectrum. Um, so, you know, we were taking uh, like Blue Betony and uh, uh, Sugar Magnolia, which ended up being the, the one cross. We did probably a dozen and a half male, purple for the male. And we bred them all back into Oregon Giant, which is a white flower, by the way, and a green pea. <clears throat> and so the hope was to, I also had this hypothesis, I still have it, I, not, it hasn't been unproven, I guess. It, but there's something like, I always think about like why people bred something. Like most of the time, if it's in the market, it's probably been bred for something that we really probably don't want so much. Maybe it's, like long storability is good but not at the expense of the nutrition or flavor or something. So we started to, like, I started to think like snow peas, why are snow peas always flat when you buy them and pick at the size they are? And, and mostly because they pack flat. If you pack the curly ones, they break and they, they don't ship or they don't move. And so I was like, maybe that's why they, they bred this curl out because the curl is also genetic. Like the, sometimes they S curl and sometimes they C curl, and 
that has something to do with the genetics of the rib, not like, you know, unlike us with, you know, curly hair, it's just like it's a trait. And so um, <clears throat> I wanted to retain that because I really feel that the, the influence to curl the pea actually adds to the potential nutrition because it's a stronger rib. So there's more energy going into the pea. Anyway, that's another story. But I think that's happening. And I think I can taste it and sense it. So, so I was like, all right, I want to retain that. I want to make it purple. <clears throat> so we made all these crosses. And I did have this expectation that what we were going to get from crossing these two things, you know, if you know peas, actually, just to say that they're, they're butterflies, right? They're, they're flowers, five petal, but it's really like two, two fused, two unfused, and a keel. And so peas and, and most all the legumes are uh, self-pollinating, so they don't need bees or anybody. They happen early enough in the season where they don't do that. In fact, a lot of our work is to protect from any kind of, like any like squash or stuff like that, and protect from uh, any kind of adulteration from what you're trying to get to. So when, when you cross-pollinate a pea, you, you have to cross it well before it's open because it does all its work before it's expressed. And so you pull the keel off and in the right situation, the pollen grains are nice and firm like on a, you know, Easter lily or something. And they can just slide off of the female. And then you have that, you don't have to worry about it self-pollinating. And then the male, you wait for that one that's a little bit older and more powdery and you make the cross. And you can even slip the keel back on so that it protects it or take the keel from the male and put that on and cover it. And <clears throat> so out of that would come what we call the, the F1, the first hybrid. And they were different enough so that they would because they were both like really stable old lines. Um, all of the 18 or so that we bred in all you know, old established lines. So we knew what we were going to get. We actually probably wouldn't want the F1 because all it would be just the dominant traits. Right? Beautiful, but probably inedible, which, which is exactly what we found. And a whole bunch of different, like the first cross, oops, the first cross looks exactly all the same practically. So they, they came out, they were flat. They were like really coarse, solid. And they had a, a green rim and this beautiful purple blush coat. And I was like, oh, that's really awesome. And that, there was a bunch that came out of all the rest of them, but that was the one from uh, Sugar Magnolia. So out of that, we chose 10 hybrids, like our top 10 list. And then we grew them out as F2 uh, that following s summer. So I was doing it and starting them off in greenhouses, growing them in the greenhouses so I could get multiple reps. And then we grow them outside for the summer grow them through the winter to see if we could get better cold tolerance on them and stuff like that. And, you know, it just started by the second, by <clears throat> basically by the second generation, we identified a curl and a, a very low astringency, beautiful color and, um, and not fibrous. So we found, we, like it's, it was like, you know, miracle, like a little bit. It was just like, here's this thing. It was like, that was what we were kind of looking for. And so we saved that. And now the great thing about peas, because they self-pollinate, you can just, just grow that population and then select the ones that you think are most delicious or most colorful. And so once we found it, that was what I was saying. I mean, that's the good idea of the whole thing. Like 
genetic expression, there's so much hidden. It's like for us, like, I have good ideas all the time. I wish people were around when I have them because then I forget, you know. <laughs> you know, they could have been the best idea ever. But the fact is that it didn't stick and it didn't, it wasn't carried on. Like, and so you need everybody else now to, to weigh in on that. Because there's a good idea. This thing that surfaced, is, it was, it's an expression, right? There's this awesome thing. And I was like, wow. And so we're trying to save that, keep, maintain that, and kind of sculpt that as it, as it continued to grow. And that has now been, well, I did about 10 years of pretty successional breeding on it. So that's in its, you know, 18, 20th generation or whatever. It's pretty stable. It's a stable hybrid. I, would, I wouldn't quite call it an open pollinator yet, but it's very close as a stable hybrid. And it's, we grow it out. It's got really fast germination. It's always really like quick to get up above. It can germinate in cool soils because we kept it in the winters and selected and that kind of stuff. And um, so it's expressing all these great resilient things that competitively against the other peas and it's got this color. So that was like, you know, it just kept showing me that more, more of the time we kept that pea project going, all of these other breeding projects started because all the people around me, the farmers that were around me with me, were participating in it with me and they were excited about it and they were like, can we do this with X and Y? Can I save this from, can I save these fava beans? Or can I, you know, and so it became this kind of uh, lighthouse, you know, for all the rest of these projects because it was such a mainstay and it was just something that I was loving and, you know, wasn't something I was like, I wanna, somebody asked me the other day about it and they were like, so what's your plan with this pea? <laughs> I was like, this is the plan. I don't know what you mean. I'm like, this is the plan. The plan is to keep doing this. And they're like, won't you want to commercialize it? Or, you know, I was like, I, if, if you want to commercialize it, like, it's fine with me. Like, let's, we should talk about that. But that's not the reason I'm saving the pea. I, I, I think it's really interesting. And it's, it's, it's like material for more work. So now, actually, the past few years, I have... Uh, uh, one of the uh, people I work with, Jason, has taken on a lot of the breeding work and we've really grown our program um, way more than I can oversee myself. And so he's really taken it on and learned so much and very passionate in his own right, saving lots of stuff. And so a way to make it some of his was to then say, well, let's, where do we go now that we have this stable line? Where's the next cross? What do we do now? Well, now we're trying to make a, a purple snap pea. So we started to bring in all these older varieties of snaps and make the cross. So now that purple is the, the mother to the rest of these new snaps. And now we, we just, we're, in, we're, we're entering our fourth generation of a stab, stabilizing of this it's not even near close to done, but it's this snap pea that's, you know, maybe two and a half, three inches long, super crisp and sweet, and it's got this beautiful bright blush, which is cool if you, you know, working with peas, it gets pretty monotonous to pick, so it's nice when there's a little different color. <laughs> it just makes it a little easier, and plus it's, it's just unique and feels like something that the farm it's just ours. It's just a, an expression of this place and our people. 
it's a it's it's a good feeling. And the reality of it, at the end of the day, it's just it's only it's only a, an exercise to to show other people that it's so easy. It just takes the attention and timing, like which is I think one and the same. If you're paying attention, you're there for that moment when it's when the moment is right to move it forward. Um, it's probably the best lesson, best example of that was with all the rest of the stuff we're doing, we're, we're either just saving a line or something. And that one is a little bit more like, more of a, uh, you know, like a material, like something we're working with to, to change other stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so that P, I grew it and started to do it in the mid 2000s. And, uh, in well, what's interesting is Stone Barnes as was his original benefactor with David Rockefeller, and um, for as grand and you know how much he has done and his family and everything and you know all this stuff, what doesn't need anything, but he always loved the farm. He would come over, ride a carriage, come to the farm every once in a while. It wasn't far from the farm, and um, he died at 101, and he was driving carriages until he was 100. He was riding, driving horses, and like, I always sort of admired that in him, and just like really loved nature. So I had this kind of interesting juxtaposition. Anyway, I had learned early on when I first came to the farm that um, he, his birthday is right when peas start to emerge, and so um, I would always bring him a basket of peas from the farm for his birthday. So, right at the beginning of June and it was like, anyway, so um, it just happened that the pea was stable enough that um, the center wanted to do something for him for his birthday. So I named the pea after him and we had this beautiful painting rendered for him. Uh, this woman did this watercolor of this purple pea and, and uh, that, was, that was his gift. And it was kind of just an interesting thing to add, it was his 100th birthday. We gave him this pee, essentially, which was great because I didn't really want it to be attached to me so much. That was the other thing about it. It's like I'm glad it went to him, but honestly, the more more importantly, it just it wasn't. I just didn't want it. It wasn't mine. You know what I mean? Better off not mine. Just better off being something that's actually available. So I wasn't gonna. You know, sometimes the farmers are like, we call it Jack's Purple. I'm like, it's not Jack's Purple. It's <laughs> don't call it that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's not, it's, it's, it's a gift. So that was kind of, uh, it sort of made it known in the community too, which is the other part of that is that now people are excited about it. We call it Picantico Purple, because <laughs> that's where we live. That's our, that's our little hill.